Welcome to Your Financial Advocate with Greg DuPont from DuPont Wealth Solutions. As a practicing advisor and attorney, Greg teaches pre-retirees how to reduce debt and taxes and save with less risk so they have more spendable income and plan their way to a better life. Join us for this journey where Greg draws on years of experience and guest experts to help listeners achieve more spendable income for retirement. Hello and welcome to Your Financial Advocate with Greg DuPont of DuPont Wealth Solutions. This episode is a part two of a two-part series. Greg has a special guest and we're going to get to him in just a moment. But if you have not heard part one, please go back and listen to it. It was fantastic. It gives you a good foundation for what the guys are going to be talking about today. Greg, you have brought your guest back today. What's going on? Uh, we are blessed to have uh, Derek DeBras with us again for another episode to continue our conversation about uh, all things related to guns. Uh, and uh, as we talked about opening the last presentation, you know, many people that have accumulation, they are savings, they have assets. And one of those things I'm finding more and more are people have invested uh, in guns. And they don't really know all of the intricacies and the problems that come along with that. So I uh, brought on who I believe is uh, the leading expert in the field, Derek DeBras. Derek, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Greg. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. So we talked a lot about the gun trust and you know, that form of ownership last time. But uh, as we close down our conversation, Eric uh, posed a question I think we really do need to dig on a little bit. And that is, you know, how does it work at a state level? How does it work, you know, just kind of those issues that people deal with, uh, with just owning the gun? Mm -hmm. what, uh, where do we start with that? I'll let you lead that field. Yeah, um, I think we're going to have to start with a thousand foot up view because you get in the weeds, every state is very, very vastly different. The definition of firearm is different from state to state. Some states have additions of assault weapons that can't be owned, like in California or New York. And then some states don't define it all, like Ohio. You know, it's just every state is very different. So I can speak most intelligently about Ohio. So in Ohio, generally, we're a very pro-gun state, uh, even more pro-gun than Texas. As far as the laws are concerned, um, we have things like open carry. You don't need a license to have an to open carry a firearm. We do have regulations on certain more exotic weapons like NFA weapons. We call it dangerous ordinance. But as long as you're complying with federal law, you're good with state law. Can I ask you a quick question there? Because uh, mm -hmm. I, I am almost ignorant uh, with regards to guns. So open carry versus concealed carry. I mean, I, sure. so you're telling me that I can take my handgun and walk down the street? Uh, and that's legal, but if I've got it hidden, it's not. I, what's what's that? It's exactly what I'm saying. In fact, I'd go a step further. You could put an AR-15 on your back and walk down High Street. Completely legal in the state of Ohio. I'm not telling you to do that, <laughs> so we're making it clear. <laughs> I've defended people who have done that and been arrested, and we usually win those cases because it is legal. It stems from the United, or the, I'm sorry, the Ohio Constitution. I always misquote this, Article 3, Section 2 maybe, but it's our version of the Second Amendment in the Ohio Constitution. And there was a case, the Klein versus Lease case, L-E-I-S, Klein, K-L-E-I-N, if I remember correctly. And that came out, I want to say, 2000s. And it was a gentleman who was convicted of concealing a, a handgun on him. Um, we didn't have the licensing scheme back then, if I remember correctly. Um, so you couldn't have a concealed handgun license. So what ended up happening was they said, look, this is unconstitutional. How can he keep and bear an arm? right under the Ohio Constitution if he can't carry it. It doesn't make any sense. And the mm -hmm. court said, no, no, no. The mode of carry is not what's protected. And so inversely then, and this was noted in the dissent, that 
oh, or uh, it might have been a concurrence, but they had an additional opinion on it, that open carry is the only way you could exercise that right. The Attorney General's taken that position. It's directly in the handbook for concealed carry on the Attorney General's website. It is completely illegal activity. There's even a district court case, might have been a circuit court case from Toledo, where a gentleman was, they called 911 on him because he was open carrying a gun while he was walking his dog, and they stopped him. And I use the word stop as a legal term of art, a Terry stop. And the court said, look, you can't do that. It's not, it's not justifiable. He was just exercising a constitutional right. So open carry is completely legal in Ohio. Some states it's not legal. Some states you can't have a loaded gun openly, but you can have a gun, just it can't be loaded. Texas, you can, if I remember correctly, you can only open carry a handgun if you have a concealed handgun license. And that is relatively new. You used to not be able to open carry handguns down there at all. It's freaking Texas. But Ohio has had this law around... Well, since the invocation of its constitution, I suppose, right? Yeah. So I've I've heard people you know, talk about you know the that you have to do certain things when you when you got the guns in a car when you're transporting from point A to point B. What's the genesis of that? And yeah. what someone what someone got to do with that? Yeah, complicated. My old website, OhioGunLawyer.com, still has a motor vehicle carry page. I'd spent days trying to digest all the carry requirements in cars in Ohio and distilling it as much as I could. Um, so the first thing you should know at the federal level under the Gun Owners Protection Act of 1986, they tried to pass a law that created a bare minimum of, of what you can do in every state. With So basically the state can't be more restrictive than the federal government says it is. Um, and that law basically says it's got to be unloaded, locked in a box. If it's an SUV, then it's got to be uh, out of arm's reach or something like that in a, in a box bagger case that's locked. You know, there, there's all these requirements. And as long as you're meeting that standard, the state can't prosecute you, theoretically. The problem is, is every state treats that law different. Some treat it like an affirmative defense. Some treat it like a, a complete bar to prosecution. So like New Jersey, there's the case of Brian Aiken. You should look him up. It's a fascinating story. He's moving to New Jersey. Calls, if I remember correctly, the highway patrol out there. He says, I got a Glock. I'm going to have it you know, locked in the trunk, unloaded. Is that okay? They said, yes. He goes out there. His mom thought he was going to hurt himself because he just broke up with his wife. She calls the cops. They pick him up. They find the gun. It wasn't legal to do what he was, he alleges they told him to do. They charge him, prosecute him. The judge doesn't let that affirmative defense under federal law come in because he was complying with it. He's convicted seven years in prison, loses his kid. He's a felon. I can beat mm -hmm. my wife in Ohio and not do a day in jail. But God forbid I carry a gun the wrong way in a car in New Jersey. I am I am like a murderer. I can do I, I know people that have, have killed people and gotten six years in prison for it. But God freaking forbid I carry a Glock in the back of my car, right? This is crazy. This yeah. is absolutely asinine. I don't care if you don't like guns. You can't tell me that makes any damn logical sense. It's nuts. Right. But the right. guy ended up getting um he got clemency at first from Christie and then eventually got a full pardon. And uh, he's, a, he's, a, um, he's a very outspoken libertarian now, if I remember correctly. So, you know, that's <laughs> Gee, an example yeah. of car carry going, running amok. But yeah, in Ohio, yeah. in Ohio, we have a um, pretty complicated way you have to carry guns. The first thing to remember is that when you talk about carrying a concealed gun in your license, you do not have a CCW license. What you have in Ohio is a CHL. It's a concealed handgun license and it's important to remember that because in florida you get a ccw license it applies all sorts of weapons but not in ohio which means i can't use that license and the benefits it bestows on me to carry a long gun or to carry a knife 
or to carry a baton or any other deadly weapon, right? It only applies to handguns. So if I have a concealed handgun license in Ohio, there's no restrictions on car carry. Okay, so I can just have it on my hip. I can put it under the seat. It doesn't matter. Gotcha. One thing to know historically, though, when the law passed in 04, there actually was a lot more onerous restrictions on car carry. It used to have to be holstered on your person, and people would get charged for a crime if it wasn't in a pocket holster, if they put the gun in their pocket asinine it had to be in a locked glove box or console or it could be and this was my favorite part in a box bagger case to wit the box bagger case had to be zipped snapped or buckled to wit the zip snapper buckled was zip snapped or buckled and that's what the law <laughs> so i used to in my classes my concealed carry classes i'd hold up a, a ziploc bag and i say if i put my handgun in this is that okay and no one really knew is it a zip is it a snap is it a buckle i don't know it's more of a slider Right. So, um, so car carry, you know, understand the history it's come from and we've taken advantage of, of, of how legislation works in Ohio. And I say, we, I mean the, the gun, uh, pro gun movement, you know, Highlands for concealed carry Buckeye farms association, national rifle association. So when we're trying to pass things like restaurant carry, people are more focused on alcohol and guns. Well, we'll sneak this right on in and we'll fix this part of the law, which is what we were able to do. So car carry though, with concealed handguns, and if it's a handgun and you have a license, generally no restrictions. Without a concealed handgun license or as applied to all other guns, it's got to basically be in a box, bag, or case and unloaded. Now, the term unloaded has changed over the years. It used to be if you put ma- ammunition in your magazines, you put it in one bag, put it on the back seat. You put your unloaded guns in another bag, put it on the back seat. That was a crime because it was considered loaded. Because there was loaded ammunition in the magazine and there was a gun in the car for which that magazine fed into. Even if they weren't married together or in the same compartment, it was still loaded. So we changed that. Now, if you want to carry a firearm, it's got to be unloaded, which generally means loaded magazines or stripper clips are in a complete and separate enclosure. So if you take like a range bag, one zipper, put your gun in, zip it up. Another zipper, unzip it, put your loaded magazine, zip it up. There's complete and separate enclosure. You follow? Yeah, it's got to be in a box bag or case. Um, if it's a long gun, you can put it as long as it's unloaded. It can be in a gun rack or a holster made for purposes of carrying a gun. It can be in a compartment only accessible by leaving the vehicle. It can be in plain sight as long as the action is locked open. If the action won't stay open, you can strip the gun. If it can't be easily stripped, you can just have it in plain sight with the action shut. I would never do that, of course, but that's what the law says. There's too much, too many variables in there. But you, in essence, you, that's car carry. When you talk about the definition of of handgun versus long gun, I guess mm-hmm. is is that really the dichotomy? It's handgun, and then everything else is long gun. Essentially, yes. Um, you know, there's nuances in between those definitions. Handgun is defined as a a fi- I'm going to butcher this probably, but I'll get you, I'll, you'll get the gist of it. It's a firearm that's designed to be fired fired from a single hand. The problem with that is, is that the people that write these laws don't know what they're doing. Handguns are generally not designed to be fired from a single hand. If you take any type of tactical training, you do use your offhand as a support hand. It is designed to be fired from two hands. But Mm -hmm. the way the law is written, that's what they say. So they look at features. How long is the barrel? How long is the the grip? Is there a stock on it at all? What kind of sight is being used? Things like that. Caliber. Gotcha. 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 So... 
I know you've been on uh, on your YouTube channel recently, and you're talking about um, having a drink before you drive uh, when you have uh, a handgun uh, in the car. And mm-hmm. yeah, you were uh, fairly colorful that that's something that you don't want to do. So why don't, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> why don't you chat yeah. about that for a second? Yeah, everybody always asks me when they call me, you know, how many, how many concealed carry deadly force self-defense cases you had? I'm like, that's not the majority of cases with people with guns. The majority of people... Uh, that I represent in criminal context are you're drunk with a gun. That's the majority of them. Someone goes out, has too many drinks, gets in a car. It used to be a misdemeanor before concealed carry passed. It was a first-degree misdemeanor. To get concealed carry to pass, we had to escalate it to a felony. It's a fifth-degree felony if you're under the influence of alcohol in a motor vehicle with with any type of firearm, loaded or unloaded. It's called improper carrying of a firearm in a motor vehicle. So it's going to be life-changing if you do this. You risk losing your gun rights. Uh, you risk, risk losing the gun. It's going to cost you ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Your license is going to be suspended. You're going to spend three days in a hotel with a bunch of drunks. You know, it's just not a, not a fun experience. And when I teach concealed carry, Greg, it's funny. I bring this up. And nowadays what I'll do is I'll start out by saying, look, do not get up here and start asking me questions about how you can. Because there is no good reason, unless you're Catholic, that you should have a- alcohol in your system and a gun. Because if you're Catholic, it's not alcohol, it's the blood of Christ. And I can make a First Amendment argument as such. <laughs> but any other arguments, bullshit. Well, what if I get off work and the guys are going out for a drink? I don't care. Don't drink alcohol or don't bring your guns. a simple solution, right? <laughs> guns and alcohol simply do not mix. There's too much that can happen. You could hurt somebody. You could hurt yourself. You know, it's just not a good thing. Just don't do it. For the uninitiated, what is, what is a fifth-degree felony? Fifth-degree felony is the lowest-level felony in the state of Ohio. It's punishable by up to one year in prison. You'll probably not, in your first offense, do any time. You'll be put on probation. You'll plead to the charge. You'll lose the gun, pay a fine. That's probably what will happen. Yeah. Not something anybody wants to uh, walk into knowingly. No. Well, you're never going to get a job again. You're a felon. You know, it's, it's life-changing. It's absolutely yeah. life-changing. You know, for those that don't know, uh, one of the ways that Derek and I got to know each other was through our joint work for the uh, local counties and the uh, Alcohol, Drug Addiction, Mental Health Services Board in connection with civil commitment hearings. Uh, And Derek uh, represented people that were alleged to be mentally ill. Uh, and I, uh, I was on the other side, so we'll we'll let somebody else fill in the blank about who was the good guy there. But <laughs> but we've we've had you know, many conversations he and I about that that nexus between mental health uh, and gun ownership and just how mm. challenging that problem is. So what mm. what's your take on that uh, with regard to how that works, at least how yeah. it could work, and, uh, because it's. You know, guns don't kill people, right? It's that's the the old adage, but right. there is a real challenge there with people that are mentally ill, sure. uh, and the uh, the rights that people do have. How does that? Yeah. How does that currently look? Yeah, I think most of your mass shooters are have some sort of mental illness to some degree. Look, I I loved my time doing mental health court primarily because it helped me really truly understand the system in the context of gun ownership. I mean, how many gun lawyers get that experience? How many lawyers get that experience at all, Greg? There's not many of us. We're a unique club, if you will, that have actually done those cases. And how many cases have you done or even I have done in four years of that court? It's, it's just invaluable. It is the toughest part of, of gun law, in my opinion. You know, you can get up there and say you're a purist. The founding fathers never meant for regulation on guns. They didn't put it in the Constitution. But you can't look me in the eye and say someone who's schizophrenic says they hear the voice of Jesus telling them to kill a school school kid or a room of school kids is a good thing. 
And, and I think there needs to be some sort of balance with mental illness and those civil liberties. And it's a constant struggle, even without guns. They're civil liberties in general, right? Just their freedom. You know, you deal with that every day in your job at the mental health court. You have to balance somebody's civil liberties that were God-given against protection of society. And that's such a tough thing to do. It's a very tough thing to do. So I have not found a great solution for it. I think education is primarily the best thing we can do instead of just putting band-aids on things and creating more regulation that's only going to harm lawful gun owners. I mean, if somebody's mentally ill or, or intends to commit a crime, they're going to commit it. I'm not saying let's make it easy for them to get the gun, but we already have background checks. We already have regulation. You know, the only next step we can do is take away guns, and that's just a non-starter because it is a civil right. So we have yeah. to find a better solution. Well, it, it, part of the devil being in the detail is the definition of mental illness, right? You and I both have seen sure. many people that uh, when they are taking their medication, they're fine. Uh, many people that would fall under the definitions that they floated of mental illness that are perfectly functional in the community uh, without mm -hmm. any issues, without being in crisis. And when you have these people that... On the other hand, they, like you said, the mass shooters and those type of things, they definitely are people that have some illness, are in crisis one form or the other, and it's very, it's, beyond, it's above my pay grade. Yeah, I mean, look, this is, at the end of the day, this is going to sound heartless and very crass, but at the end of the day, this is it. Freedom has a price. You know, when there's freedom, people have the freedom to make poor decisions, and they have the freedom to hurt people. We cannot over-regulate society where we no longer have freedom because we don't want anybody to have pain. Pain is what causes society to get better and to grow, right? So at the end of the day, yes, it's unfortunate that people get harmed because there's freedom, but that's true across the board. I have the freedom to drive my car. I have the freedom to drink alcohol, and I could put the two together and hurt somebody, you know? There's got to be a better balance somehow between the two. Uh, and mental health, just so you know, at the federal level on guns, it's, it's very convoluted. It's very complicated. They do define it in the CFR, generally just so your listeners know, because of the Heller decision in 2008, which was a landmark Supreme Court decision that said the Second Amendment is an individual right, not a right of the government, not a right of the militia, but a right of the individual. Because of that case, you need due process before you take away those rights. So, Greg, you know how long these hearings last on average. It's usually 15 minutes, give or take. And just like that, in the blink of an eye, your gun rights are gone for the rest of your life because you've had your due process. That's what that hearing was. You know, what they can't do is you go to a doctor, the doctor says you're schizophrenic. That doesn't mean you lose your gun rights. There's got to be due process in a court of law because you're talking about an individual right. So that's something yeah. important to remember. So there's one other area that I, I think that people would like to hear your, your thoughts on with regard to guns and such, uh, and that is, you know, the homeowner liability perspective on things, uh, the you know, proverbial stand your ground law, that type of stuff. Mm. So what, what is the state of affairs on that? And somebody's breaking into my house and I do have a firearm. What can I, can't I do? Well, you might be conflating two legal common law legal principles, which is stand your ground as well as castle doctrine. They're two separate and distinct legal dis uh, doctrines. Um, in Ohio, for years, we've had uh, um, uh, castle doctrine. April 6th of this year is when stand your ground took effect. So you have to understand deadly force self-defense first. So in a nutshell, there's three elements that historically the accused had to prove to a preponderance of the evidence in order to avail themselves of that defense. 
One, you didn't create the fight. Two, you had an honest and reasonable belief of imminent death. And then number three, you, you did not violate your duty to retreat. In Ohio at the time, you, you had to run away if you could do so. The problem was when you look at duty to retreat laws, they come from common law England. This is back when we had sticks and stones, bows and arrows. And the law basically said you had to run behind your hedgerow before you could use deadly force to defend yourself. It's the castle doctrine, right? There's nowhere else to run once you're at your home. It's your castle. It's your Alamo. It's your last stand. Makes sense? The problem with that is, is that that was before technology. Nowadays, most deadly force encounters, or a lot of them at least, involve guns. You're not running away from a bullet. It's not happening. So, st- so the whole notion that... You know, there's going to be blood in the streets. It's a license to kill if we pass stand your ground. is nonsense. It's utter nonsense. Because you're not seeing any situation where people have to run away generally from a deadly force encounter. It's just generally not a possibility. Um, so we did pass stand your ground, which is like CASA doctrine, but it extends further than just your home or within your hedgerow, if you will. It goes everywhere that you're allowed to lawfully be. Moreover, in the change in Ohio law, they took it further. They actually state in the revised code that the jury may not even consider the fact that the person could have run away if they could have done so. They're not even allowed to talk about it. They can't consider it. It can't come into play. It's not allowed to unless they nullify, of course, jury nullification. Um, But at the end of the day, the way it stands now is you can defend your life and you do not have to run away before you do so as long as you're allowed to lawfully be there. Now, you can't use deadly force to defend property. You still have to have the honest and reasonable belief of an immediate serious bodily harm or death. That still needs to exist, and you can't have been the one who started the affray. You still have to meet those elements. Um, As far as civil liability, generally, I mean, it'd be a wrongful death suit. You're probably somewhat well-educated on wrongful death suits. It's, you know, I think it's clear and convincing a preponderant standard. I can't really remember but they have to prove that somehow you led to the death that is unjustified. I mean, uh, O.J. Simpson's a perfect example of that. That was a wrongful death suit, the civil action against him. So that's what the family would have to do. But if it happens in your home, we have a lot of protections. If they were there to commit a crime not allowed to be there, they're barred from suing. And that came along with Castle Doctrine when it got passed. Gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, Eric, any uh, any thoughts that are running through the uh, fly on the wall? Well, you, you answered my question about the state to state. It's obviously it's complicated, and there's a lot more you guys could dive into on this podcast. But uh, again, I just appreciate you being here, Derek. Uh, there's a sure we could probably have 17 more podcasts on on just this one issue, and it, it is a hot issue. I, I guess my only question to you is, how hot is it? How much are you seeing right now in today's day and age in 2021? How much of an issue is this that the people are facing? Because you hear it from both sides. You hear the really, really far right saying, oh, my gosh, they're going to steal all of our guns. They're taking them all, and we've got to lock down everything right now. And then you've got the, the left, which is, well, the far left. What is your viewpoint? I mean, where are we at legislation-wise? Are we doing okay, or are, we do, are there some concerns? Uh, from my viewpoint, I don't know where you stand politically. From my viewpoint, there's absolute concerns. I mean, Biden has made that clear that he's not willing to um, cooperate or find middle ground with gun owners. He did that by nominating David Shipman for, for the uh, director position at the ATF. The man worked for a gun control organization. How, political, how much more partisan can you get? Yeah. It, it's a slap in the face. He's got two executive orders that are going to make potential criminals out of millions of people if they have a certain type of, of feature on their gun. 
I, I, yeah, I absolutely think it's dangerous. I mean, look, at the end of the day, since 1934, it's one con- gun control act after another, and it's never enough to satisfy their thirst for control. It's never enough. The Gun Control Act of 68 was overwhelmingly comprehensive. I mean, you have all kinds of disabilities that where people can't own guns. If they're nonviolent felons, they can't own a gun. How crazy is that, right? And at the end of the day, they want more, right? They, they get a bite of the cake. They want another piece of cake, and pretty soon the whole cake's gone. People need to wake up. And they need to stand up to their Congress people, and they need to put people in office that are going to defend their liberties. Because before you know it, your rights are gone. And the Founding Fathers warned us about this. So if people want to continue this conversation with you to see what they can do, and what you know, I know on the first podcast, for those that are just joining us for this one, uh, you talk about gun trusts. If they want more information, how do they get a hold of you? Sure. They can check me out on my website, munitionsgroup.com. If they just want to be educated, we do have a, a YouTube channel. It's 40,000, 50,000 subscribers right now. It's Munitions Group on YouTube. Uh, I try to film as much as I can and get videos up there. It's generally a question and answer type of video. So if this listeners have legal questions, they can post them in the comments. They go in a queue. I may or may not answer them because I get thousands of them. But, you know, I try to answer as many as I can. Derek, great. Thank you so much for that info. I know that our listeners, uh, those that you know are owning guns or are considering owning guns, this is some information they need. So I'm glad you gave that info. Greg, do you have any closing thoughts or anything to wrap up with today? So I'll just finalize things here from both of these sessions. And, you know, guns, you know, they're part of the our, our culture, uh, good or bad. You know, they are, can be vilified by others, but you know, it is a right to have them. It is sometimes for some people, as we talked about in the last pre- presentation, a an asset, a significant asset that they have uh, that they need to be able to manage and preserve and protect. Uh, and Derek uh, and others like him uh, have some tools that people really just need to be aware of because as Derek has eloquently stated throughout these last two presentations, it's easy to uh, really run afoul of the law without really meaning to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so thank you, Derek, for taking time to help educate my audience uh, with some of these concerns and uh, helping them protect themselves so that they can continue to experience the liberty that uh, we all hold so dear. So thanks, Derek. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it was my pleasure. Yeah, this is a, a, another great podcast. Again, Derek, I want to just echo what Greg said. Thank you so much for being here. Greg, of course, thank you for bringing him on. You bring on the best guest, man. This is, this is fantastic. And, of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to Your Financial Advocate with Greg DuPont. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the Subscribe Now button below. This way, when Greg comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at DuPont Wealth Solutions, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Your Financial Advocate. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of DuPont Wealth Solutions. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.